everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we're speaking to the dream catchers. These are people who went after their dreams and caught them. You will have heard a small preview of my dream catcher today in our intro. I'm super excited to have Dr. Maureen Murchie with me today. She's a professional violin and viola player and is based out of New York City. Maureen, welcome to the show. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on today, Maureen. And I have been watching your career uh, just blossom and seeing all the work that you've been doing. And I think it's absolutely amazing to watch. So I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your background. So where did you grow up? Uh, where did you go to school? Um, tell me a little bit about kind of the, the early years for you. Sure. I, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, which is funny because now I live in a very close proximity to that. So uh, <laughs> that was only because my dad was in grad school at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey at the time. And my mom was a nurse at Beth Israel Med Center. And that's where we lived. Um, but the bulk of my formative years were spent in Sendai, Japan, because my dad was a university professor at Tohoku Gakuin University in in Sendai. So from age nine until 18, I was in Japan and attending Japanese schools all the way all the way through high school. So that's that was uh, it's a little different. I was the only only blonde kid in the sea of navy uniforms and and black hair and uh, that was that was what was normal for me at, at the time. And when when you were there, so you're saying you're in Japanese school. So this isn't international school. This isn't an American school in Sendai. This is actually you going to a fully immersive Japanese school. Correct. Yeah, that a lot of. Uh, foreign families, a lot of the diplomat families, business-related uh, parents will send children to international schools. Um, there are several very high-level international schools in Tokyo, uh, but we were living in Sendai. Um, there was a tiny international school there also that we could have gone to, but you know, my parents and I credit them fully for this very prescient decision at the time I uh, have come to. <laughs> realize later in life <clears throat> but they uh, decided that it was better for us to I mean we were in Japan of all places Japan and their public school system is always rivaling like Germany or someone you know every year we read these studies who has the best public school system in the in the world you know it wasn't wasn't like we were in a war-torn you know country where it would have been dangerous or or a less excellent education system where maybe the American schools would have been a better uh, choice. We were, we were in Japan and they decided that we should, since we were going to live there, we should become part of the culture and learn the language. And um, so we went to Japanese schools and it was, it was very unusual, especially in that uh, time, this was, you know, late eighties. And I think, I did have some American friends that went to, we knew from church that, and other activities 
and they were all going to the American schools. So it was a little bit like, oh, those weird merchies, you know, who sent their kids to Japanese schools. Aren't, aren't you going to get bullied? And aren't you going to, how are you going to speak English well enough when you go to college? And, you know, I think there was a lot of that <clears throat> uh, going on perhaps, but my parents made that decision for us. And as an adult, I think, I wonder if it was kind of scary for them thinking, well, what if my kids get bullied? And what if, uh, but they, uh, again, to their credit, they made it seem very much not a big deal to us. You know, it was just, well, this is your new school and off you go. And if you don't understand anything, well, sit in the classroom and listen and learn until you do understand it. And if you flunk the fifth grade because you can't do any of your assignments, then then just take it again. No, no big deal. Like my, my dad actually told told me that and here I was straight A student I mean you and I have known each other since high school you know we have we had this in common very self-motivated school was came easily to me I um I, I liked school I liked being the know-it-all kind of bossy one I'm the oldest of four so any one of my siblings can back me up on that and would be delighted to I'm sure if given the chance but uh you know, when he said, well, if you flunk fifth grade, then you can just take it again, Mo. And I, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Damned if I was going to flunk the fifth grade. So <laughs> forget about it. So I, um, yeah, that's, that's what we did. They just set it up as very much a normal way of life. And you have kids of your own, you know, that that's kids have parents as their model. And that's the outlook that, uh, that kids take on that's most uh, influential. And mm -hmm. it, it, it worked because we just didn't really think anything about it. I mean, I, I knew that kids were sometimes pulling my hair and staring at me and, uh, you know, pointing at my white legs when we would have pool time and, you know, making comments. But it, I guess uh, at, one, at one point, my dad, I remember at dinner, said, uh, because my sister actually asked this question. I, it wasn't wasn't me, but she said, "Daddy, why are they always why are they always looking at me?" You know, she was probably seven, six or seven years old, uh, and it was just kind of one of those frustrating days at Japanese school where uh, everybody was always looking at her and pulling hair and wanting to just the weird kid, right? I still remember my dad's response. He said, "Well." Would you rather be one of the kids that never that nobody ever looks at at all? Mm. Because there's one of those kids in every classroom too. Mm. And I just thought that has stuck with me for decades now because it just it says so much about perspective. And it I think it um, speaks to how our outlook and how we look at things can really make or break one's experience. I mean, mm. it's sort of an obvious statement, but it's easy to forget, you know, we get so deep down into our own, um, what we think, how we think things should be in the world and in life and in our relationships. And um, actually, <laughs> when you think about the other alternative options, sometimes it's a very quick transition to, all right, actually, I've got it. I've got a pretty, pretty great right now. I had, I had a guest on who um, she does a lot of kind of work in a big bank and she was talking about how she was the only female in the room for a very long time. And she still is. She said she's often still the only female in the room and she walks in and, you know, you have a bunch of bunch of men in suits and she walks in and 
She said, actually, at first she was quite daunted by, but then she realized everyone knew her name because she was the only girl mm. in the room, the only woman in the room. And it's so true that you can, you can victimize yourself and you can own it. There's kind of two responses that you can have. And I think it's great that you did that. I, I, I need to know, I can't go any further without knowing, did you fail fifth grade? <laughs> I did not fail fifth grade. Look at that. <laughs> and in fact, I, by the end of sixth grade, I had to take an entrance exam to get into junior high uh, in Japan. It's all very rigid and, you know, you have to have a certain score in order to get into this caliber of school versus this caliber of school. And um, yeah, so within an, a year and a half of starting in a brand new language, I was the oldest of my siblings. So I was nine, which meant I already had a pretty strong uh, established foundation in the English language. I was not also learning English at the same time, like some of my younger siblings were. So I, it, it was very difficult for me at the beginning to just have to sit and listen and not know what was going on. I loved math because math was numbers. And that was the only thing that, that I could actually follow along with for, for the beginning stages there. But <clears throat> yeah, I had a teacher who was very a Japanese man teacher who was very helpful uh, and helping me prepare for these entrance exams. And he would stay after school with me on Saturdays and help me learn the kanji characters. And just really, it was so interesting. He was born, uh, his name was um, Hiroshi Otsuki. And I have no idea where he is now today. I, I wish I did because I would I would send him a letter and tell him that I'm talking about him on, you know, <laughs> a very famous podcast out of London. <laughs> He would get a kick out of that but he was just an old school uh japanese man who grew up he was born in 1945 and uh right at the end of the war and so he for him the impression of americans was these were the people who sent boxes of of canned goods and clothes and everything from you know through the red cross when he was a little boy and that's because of course japan had nothing uh, in 1945. It was completely uh, decimated as a, as a country and society and they started to build, build back up. But, you know, a lot of the older, the next generation beyond uh, Otsuki Sensei did not like Americans because, you know, we were the ones that came and bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki and um, all, all that is included in in that connotation and that history a lot of a lot of pain and suffering of course um but he was young enough that you know what he what he had the impression he had of americans was actually very positive and so mm. he, he was just all happy to help me and you know interesting how timing and i mean timing timing is everything as my as my dad says but um yeah, he was a very actually important part of my not failing fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and and I love I wonder if he had social pressure too because you can imagine he would go home and the family would be like what are you doing? You're helping an American do what? Because there would be, you know, this culture cultural pressure around that and kind of yeah, that's it's so interesting so many dynamics there we could go down that yeah, rabbit hole we could absolutely <laughs> go down that rabbit hole but I want to get to at some point you playing the violin. Okay. Um interestingly, 
um, we moved to we moved to France. I was a very similar age, so I was kind of going into I was I was actually I finishing up second grade, skipped third grade, and was going into fourth grade. And my parents, I was a, quite a competitive gymnast at the time, and my parents sent me to a uh, camp. And I remember it was completely immersive and it was only six weeks. So it was six weeks of camp. We've just arrived in France. I didn't speak a word of French and I was trying to do gymnastics and meet people and talk to people. It was a big mess. But I remember very distinctly, there was one day when my mom would send packages the whole time. Like every day I would get a different letter from her. I think it was guilt. <laughs> I think that's what it was, guilt. Uh, and so I would love the mail. Whenever we would get the mail, that was like, the big thing. And so a woman came over and I was, I was upset about something and she just said, come on, let's go, let's go. You know, on y va, on va aller. we're going to go get the mail. You know, we're going to go get the mail. And I was like, Oh, yay. We're getting the mail. So I stuck on my little welly boots and we started to walk and we're like kind of walking through the woods and, and then we get to a place and we're standing there and she, there's no mail. There's no mail anywhere. But just to be completely clear there, there's a lot of bees but there's oh. no mail. We were going to miel, which is honey. Oh. We were going to get honey. We were not. I, I literally, I remember collapsing on the ground and just sobbing. <laughs> and they were so confused. They were like, <laughs> she was super excited. And now she's on the floor in a heap. Like what has happened here? And so I totally empathize with little Mo going in day after day. And what I think is so interesting about it is that's where your character, that's where your strength, that's where resilience, that's where all of that is built is in those moments of what feel like horror in that moment. Like your sister coming home and being like, why does everybody stare at me? Or me expecting there to be male and it just being bees, you know, and, and you do, you build that, you build that resistance and that resilience. And yeah, it's, it's amazing to have those experiences looking back. Yes, absolutely. That Japanese. So that's, that seems to have served you well. So Let's let's kind of get into the let's get into the violin playing. And then I want to kind of come back to the Japanese because I know that's something that's really kind of helped you on this journey. But mm -hmm. how did you so where did you start playing the violin? Was that in Japan or was that before? Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, that was before. I, my father is a violinist also and um, a, was a professional violin or professional musician uh, in his younger years before he transitioned into college teaching and um sort of as a living did did that but he is also a pianist and always had church music jobs um when I was growing up playing organ and piano and I think I just like many kids I saw daddy doing it and I told my parents I wanted to play the violin and so he got me lessons with one of his the best colleague that he could find he knew a lot of them because he was actually in the uh in the field and in the city and in the scene. So this was, we were living in Denver and Colorado at the time. Uh, my first teacher was uh, a woman named Janet Winklebauer. She lived in Aurora, Colorado. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't remember sort of being that kid who was like, I want to play violin, I want to play violin and nagging my parents forever. I, I remember that my youngest sister uh, did that. I remember her being that annoying one who won and she also like many youngest siblings in a musical family like that I've seen this with my own students often the youngest one will be the most talented and the quickest and it just you know they've been seeing it for their entire life and hearing hearing it go on and practicing in rooms in the house and that sort of thing so mm. um 
but I was the oldest. I was the first ones, but I still had a, I had a model and there was always music in my house and my grandparents were very musical as well. And, um, my grandma, grandmother was a singer, um, on my dad's side, my mom's side, my grandma was a pianist, I mean, professional pianist. So a lot of, lot of, uh, I, I came by it honestly, for sure. And uh, it was sort of a natural thing for me to take on, but I, I never really made this statement to my, I, I couldn't make this statement to myself or to anyone else that I want to be a violinist. Uh, so strangely enough, I mean, I hope you don't fire me from your podcast for, uh, <laughs> for, for saying that because I actually, I, I don't fit into the category of people who stuck with one thing that they wanted to do and, uh, and never veered from it. Rather, I, I had the violin and, you know, in Japanese school, it's interesting. They probably are very related, uh, when I think back on it, the fact that I was in school where I didn't really understand anything for for a while, you know, the violin is music is a language that doesn't require words. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was very it served as a uh, as a comfort and as a tonic to me, even as a kid, whether I realized that or not. And as an adult, I most certainly realize that uh, music is my favorite drug, you know, and um, so yeah, I just went to school. I I studied violin in school, but I wasn't a music major for undergrad, but it got me some scholarship money. I got I was the oldest of four kids, so where I went to college was where we got the most uh, scholarship money and um I had a wonderful time at Baylor University, but I studied in their um university scholars program, which was a kind of choose your own adventure degree for <laughs> as long as you kept a, a high enough GPA. And um, so within that program, it was perfect for me because I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do with my life. I had way too many interests. I even applying to schools, um, I thought I wanted to study international studies. And I even, I, you know, got into Georgetown and um, Notre Dame and uh, these international study, I really thought I was going this this route. And I ended up going um, to Baylor because they had a, financially it made the most sense at the time. And they gave me some scholarship money to play the violin and play in the orchestra. And uh, I actually stayed there to do a master's then later in violin because mm. the teacher there was was very, encouraging to me and he was an excellent excellent pedagogue and mentor and so <laughs> I mean still by the end of college I still didn't really know that I really wanted to be a violinist but it took this one teacher saying you know Maureen I I think you could you could really do something with this and I I could I can help you and that was enough of an impetus for me plus the assistantship, graduate assistantship and you know, not having to go into loans uh, always, always helps. But uh, so, so I did that. And it was during those two years um, in as doing a master's with Dr. Bruce Berg at Baylor University was uh, very formative for me. I think that was finally kind of the push that I needed and that I used to Kind of catapult myself into the professional into playing music professionally 
So, you know, it, I wasn't so religiously devoted to playing the violin and, and nothing else, but rather I, I walked through doors that were opened unto me and I tried to bloom where I was planted, you know, to use all the sort of <laughs> cliches here. But sometimes that's, for me anyway, that was what I was taught to do and what I had learned through experiences like the Japanese school and moving overseas and, you know, having to just figure it out. I think I was, uh, because I was used to already doing that from such a young age, I, I naturally did that with, with music as well and violin. And I, we were chatting earlier and I told you that I also played viola. Um, that was another thing. I had an opportunity during my master's to play, to learn the viola. It's similar to violin, but it's, it is a different instrument. It's a different clef on the page. So it's a different language that one has to learn. Um, but I just decided to go through that door and take that opportunity at the time. And that's served me very well. I love to play the viola. It's kind of the middle, it's the middle of the sandwich in the harmony, in the harmony sandwich. If you think of the violins being on the melody and if you think of an orchestra, violins are the melody, bass, cello, um, they play the bass line and the violas are somewhere in the middle and it can be really, really interesting to, um, be a part of the music making in, in that way, as opposed to the, you know, hotshot show off melody guys that um, often the, that's the fun part about playing violin. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's so interesting. And, and you were saying that you get quite a bit of work out of that as well, that, you know, there again, you know, when we think about it in terms of business terms, people going for those big roles, um, you know, a lot of people want to do that, but actually if you can do something that's kind of the supporting role or you can do something that, you know, will help kind of support the hotshot, you know, <laughs> you know, and in, in, in viola terms. Um, so if you're yeah playing that viola, what, I mean, what was, what was it that opened that door for you? So learning the viola, what doors ended up opening for you off the back of that? Um, I, I started, I decided to learn the viola clef. I decided to just teach myself how to play viola. One one summer, I was I was living in Texas, and there are a lot of weddings. That's a big industry for string players because a lot of people like to have string quartets at their at their weddings and receptions. And so I had developed a little bit of a um, my business is sort of a stretch, but you know I was 19 years old, so I would but people often will call the music school and ask for um, string players to come and play events. And I just, I was in this one summer where I was having trouble finding a violist that I, that I liked to play with. So I had all these violin friends who were fantastic players and, you know, very reliable professionals and, you know, would show up on time and look good and sound good and all this, but I was always kind of this viola problem. So I just decided to learn it myself that it was going to be I was going to stop playing violin and make somebody for these gigs anyway I thought well I'm just going to learn the darn thing myself and then I won't have to worry about this so I, <laughs> that was my solution to that problem sort of at the time it seemed like the most practical uh, thing to do and it means to an end which was you know my pizza money and coffee money from these wedding gigs it's not we're not talking about a lot here but uh, it seemed like a lot when, you know, when you're a college student. 
but then I discovered that I really enjoyed playing viola and it was fun to play chamber music with other people. And there aren't as many violists in the in classical music professional scene. Let's just put it that way. There's a little, there's less of a, uh, less competition. And violinists, really, really, really good violinists are, are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere, you know, and um, now there are, I mean, there are really good violists everywhere too, but there are fewer of them. So it's, uh, if you can, um, I found that if I could show up and play in tune and in time and be a good colleague uh, with a viola, I was going to get called again. And uh, for sure, some of the most exciting uh, opportunities that I've had in playing professional music have been on the viola. I've played in Broadway pits uh, on viola. Uh, I played a concerto last December in Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center, uh, played a concerto with an orchestra, the American Classical Orchestra. Uh, I was playing viola. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I, I love the viola. I love that it's uh, it sort of opened these, these doors for me and, and opened opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I had just stuck to violin. I mean, Perhaps if I had only focused on violin and, you know, I could have a better job on violin or, you know, who knows, we could do the play the what if game forever. But uh, I'm I'm happy with my sort of combo combo meal. <laughs> that I've yeah. Developed. yeah. And we do. I mean, one of my whole seasons is called the skills that pay the bills. And it's all around that kind of transferable skills. And, you know, we talk about how how can you pivot to do something a bit different? How can you pivot to um, put a different bow in your string to, <laughs> uh, to chat about? But I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, even in the music world, there are those options that you can find that, that pivot, you can find, you know, that gap that needs to be filled. You can find where the drama queens are that you don't want to deal with and actually learn that. And then you're showing up and you're the one that people are able to, to call on. What I think is really interesting about your story, Mo, is, you know, in the beginning, you were saying about when you went to university, you weren't really sure what you wanted to do. You're kind of thinking international studies, you, you know, you went where the scholarships were, which is always a wise decision. And you ended up kind of going through until master's where you weren't quite sure. And and, and I think it's so interesting because a lot of times what you find is you said that single mindedness with people when they're kind of going for that dream is they have the dream, they study it, they follow through with it, they get the mentors, they get the right places, they make sure that they pivot themselves into the right spaces to be able to do it um, and, you know, and, and go on to achieve. And I'm wondering if there's something there around you picking up the viola as well that kind of mirrors that, is that you had multiple interests. And so I wonder mm. if actually, you know, we were playing what if cards here, but if you'd stayed just with the violin, if actually that might have gotten you a bit bored because you needed to have that diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely a, a very real possibility. I mean, I I've discovered uh, about myself. I know we're supposed to talk. Wait, hold that until later. But no, um, what it, what have you it, discovered it, about it, yourself it, along the way? You can share with us <laughs> now. Go on, let's do it out of order. I love it. <laughs> um, you know, I I really. I like music. I just like to play music. I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't love the violin. Violin is actually an excruciatingly difficult instrument to play. <laughs> it's hard to start. It's hard to teach because you have to listen to this high, you know, annoying sound all the time. The instruments are ex- 
expensive. They need upkeep and repairs that are expensive. The strings are expensive. You have to travel on planes and fight with flight attendants over the, you know, overhead bin space. Um, you know, it's just, <laughs> I don't, I don't love the violin, the viola, but I just, I, I love playing music and I love to be a part of the action. And that's, you know, a lot of people really love playing the violin. I went to school with the, the violin jocks, you know, who would be in the practice room at two in the morning, just playing, 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 playing all by themselves in a little white room. Uh, you know, I did my fair share of that, of course, preparing for my lessons and everything that I needed to uh, <laughs> accomplish in order to get degrees and play performances and get passed on juries and that sort of thing, prepare auditions. But I, I just like, I just like the music. I like the collaborative part. I like the communication part, and I think that is probably also not unrelated to my Japanese, to the the experience in Japan, where I had this chapter of my life where I wasn't able to communicate, and I was old enough that I recognized that I couldn't communicate, I couldn't express anything, and so when I was finally able to get past that and achieve um, communication with effective communication with other people, it felt even, it felt like it was even more of a precious uh, commodity in a way. And so music for me is about the, um, it, it really is a tool of expression. That's how I treat it. People, many people use music for many different roles and, and ways to fulfill themselves, but uh, for me, it's always been about the uh, commute. I'm the medium, you know, and I'm communicating message from A to B, whoever the whoever the listener is. And whether I do that on violin or viola, it doesn't really matter that much to me. I just, but to your point about you know sticking with one one goal, it, it's interesting because that's what we're told. Oh yeah, follow your dream mm -hmm. and don't let anybody get in your way and don't let anybody distract you from that and just stay on the path, steer the, you know, stay the course and, and you'll get there, you'll get there. I mean, it's a little bit, uh, I, yeah, I think it's maybe perhaps not always the best advice, right? Even though that's what, that, uh, what we all kind of are told. And it's true to a certain extent, of course. But I would, yeah, encourage your your listeners and I uh, to, at least in my experience, the also having your eyes and your kind of antenna uh, pointed outward and very long and wide to see what other opportunities are uh, are out there that are related to what your what your dream is or what your goals are. Sometimes those can the pivot can really as you say, can can be even more wonderful than what uh, what you started out going for in the first place. And that's one of the things I find really interesting about the guests I've had on Dreamcatchers is people talk about the dream shifting a bit for them as well. So it's kind of you're on a path and and some people say, I want to play an instrument professionally, you know, whatever name your instrument for mm -hmm. us, we're talking about here, violin, viola. And you do that and you get paid to do it. And then maybe you want to teach it. Maybe actually what you found is that you really love teaching it. And so you pivot into that, or maybe what actually you love the communication of it and you want to study the music. You want to study something about it and go on radio and share that or start a podcast or, you know, do something. And it's kind of that, that antenna idea I think is so important because you have a love for it. And that comes across very clearly, even in this conversation 
And I love that use of the word, the conversation. It's almost like you're the conduit. You're the, you're, you're having a conversation with the audience. And I think that's what makes the best performers because what mm. you are not saying, but it's very clear is it's not about you. You are not the one that's showcasing yourself. You're communicating and showcasing the music. Right. Again, yeah, it's, uh, again, it's going back to our very first part of this conversation about perspective and how, how one approaches something. I mean, in, in a way, yes, I, I am, if I'm standing on a stage and playing the violin in a black dress and in heels and hair done up and makeup and, you know, sparkly earrings, certainly I'm, I'm the center of many people's attention. Uh, but, and, and many people, so, uh, so I could, see my role as that as something to be on stage and looked at and and to a certain extent I have to I mean it is a performance role yeah yeah you're performing exactly yeah <clears throat> but I have found that thinking of it in terms of um a conduit as you say and a a messenger actually helps much more with um performance anxiety and and all of these things that musicians str struggle with uh, because to then it's yeah thinking on my own that it's not really about me and more about the music is is actually very helpful and that takes it took me a lot of years and experience to get there you know as kids we of course we think it's about us it's about whether we play this in tune and whether I have a memory slip and oh my gosh my somebody who's way better than I am in my studio class just showed up at the hall and came to hear me and now I'm so embarrassed and you know it's, just, it's very much a mind mind game uh, a psychological battle playing music uh, in public for sure so um, and a lot of that is just maturity and you know to overcome that takes just years of doing it and failing and a little bit of success along the way but at luck timing you know um yeah but, yeah and i think i just there's i mean that, that what you just said there like i mean i could unpack this for about another hour i think <laughs> but there's there's something so profound there in terms of you're exposing yourself on a stage and you're having people coming and seeing you who you rate and you think that they are judging you because they're listening to you and so you automatically think they're judging you in the business world it's often the same thing where you have to present at a meeting and somebody incredibly senior is there or somebody that you think is a really good presenter is there. And it's so true that with time and practice and there's nothing, you cannot say enough about practice. I, I often say this to people is if you do not rate yourself as a public speaker or if you do rate yourself as a public speaker and you're getting bad feedback because you have absolutely no personal awareness, then practice, you know, sit there and actually say it you know, do the speech 10 times and get a feel for it, get the muscle memory within your, within your lips, within your face. Think about, you know, do it in front of a mirror and see what you look like. Are you staring at your feet? Do you have your hands in your pocket? Are you shifting around a lot? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the same idea of the more you practice the music, the more you're going to have the muscle memory, the more you practice the vocals. If you're singing, the more you're going to remember where the notes go, the more you practice the speech, the more you're going to remember what word leads after the other and painting that picture in your mind. And with that comes confidence. So we, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that person has a lot of confidence, but 
How much further down the road are they than you? How much more they practice that than you in order to have that confidence? Because it's quite difficult to stand up there the first time you're doing something and just being incredibly confident in it. Right. And the 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 real tricky part is that the, you have to practice the performing part of it too, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, you have to, at some point it's the first time. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's and you can only really get that practice by doing performing. So I mean, mm-hmm. I can practice in my practice room. You can practice your um speech for your meeting in your room by yourself but it's still not you're not performing yet so mm-hmm. it's very uh that's why i say you know it just takes sort of being in the doing being in the industry and doing the performances whether they're a meeting or a concert or um what have you uh you know it's how you can't just collect a bunch of business colleagues every single day to practice your public speaking skills you know i so it's um it's unfortunate that that's how we have to learn, but that's the <laughs> reality of, I mean, performing in and of itself is, is an art and a craft that, that we have to practice. I absolutely agree with you. And it, it's easy to forget that because you think, well, you know, I've been practicing since I was six years old, you know, the 10,000 hours, you know, the tennis guy. And, uh, but yet that's still, that's not really the same as practicing performing because that's it's a whole completely different mind set and environment and nerves and all and all of their and not to mention what spontaneous things can happen in the actual meeting that are out of our control and pages blowing off a music stand or somebody that we didn't expect showing up to the meeting and um, adding their two cents that you weren't expecting or asking a question that you weren't prepared for and having to think on your feet and it's very, very complex, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. No, I, I think that's such a such a brilliant and astute observation. And and the other thing that you said in your thing was about failing. And the fact is, is failing is part of that learning process. And there's a fantastic. Someone said, "Fail stands for first attempt in learning." And I thought that was just, I thought that was so amazing. Because again, if you can shift your brain and think about it like that, is you're not failing and you're done for the rest of your life. What can we learn from this? So you fall flat on your face. You forget your notes. All the music flies off the stand. You're in front of 150 people. There's that awkward, like people start going <coughs> in the, in the audience, you know? And so, so what do we learn? Not we learn- anymore. It's gotten much better <laughs> since COVID. <laughs> the only thing the that you just liked about COVID is that there's fewer coughs. There, there are fewer coughs. Yeah, uh, on average per concert. <laughs> that so, is hysterical. People, people are so, you know, self-conscious about it. Now they they cover their mouths and they it's like, well, we wish you guys would have been doing this all along. Like, <laughs> how about during my senior recital when someone's hacking up a lung? But no, now everybody's worried about what they're gonna think, what people are gonna think. It's fascinating, actually. <laughs> That's hilarious. One of the benefits of COVID we may not have even thought about. Now we know we're gonna go to the next performance <laughs> and be like, no one is coughing. This is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Um, so I do want I want to touch on one thing before we get to our final questions. Um, you you you're doing you're doing amazing work. You're doing some great things. You just talked a little bit about how you're performing in major stages and, and doing some incredible work. But you've also been able to use another one of your talents in order to to pay the bills because you know, I think you talked about the transferable skills that you have been using to pay the bills, literally. Um, and so tell me a bit about what that is and what you're doing, what you're doing in that space. Yeah. So when I moved to New York after school to try and 
play music with the, you know, play ball with the big kids. I just kind of, it was a little bit of a Mary Tyler Moore <laughs> situation. I just packed up my car and I had a few, I had some money saved up and I had a few connections in New York. I had one gig that somebody had gotten me and I so I had a date and a time that I needed to show up to play a performance of Handel's Messiah in actually in Albany, New York. <laughs> And, not um, New York City, by the way, for New anybody. York City either. I know, <laughs> it's not, not glamorous. But... but you could say you played in New York. <laughs> yes, technically, I had a gig in New York. <laughs> Just don't ask me, you know, many details. <laughs> um, but so I moved there. Oh, and one of the reasons that I um, picked... I basically thought I needed to be on one of the one of the coasts because my kind of backup plan was to use my Japanese skills to do translation and uh, interpreting work. Um, there, my my brother had done a lot of that and put himself through Princeton um, doing doing that, and he, I had heard a little bit about that this very niche field um, called document review. In the it's not niche for you because you are in the we're in the legal world and still are and um it's you know reviewing documents for incriminating evidence essentially and looking for uh things that the attorney team tells you to look for uh that are relevant to uh, the case and um when the case is about a japanese company like <clears throat> rhymes with <clears throat> Momoda um, or you know, Japanese pharma companies, banks that have American uh, branches, then they um, they need people to, a lot of the documents that are that they need for litigation are in Japanese, unfortunately for them, but fortunately for me, because they need to hire a team of people who can read those documents and interpret them for the lawyers and, you know, Ironically, one of the things that got me um, going or that I think made me marketable in that field once I started doing it was not even my Japanese skills, but my because I'm a native English speaker. So a lot of my colleagues, you know, these law firms would hire a team of Japanese people and we would all sit in this, you know, boring cubicle, you know, office space situation and 12 hours a day, 14 hour, however many overtime hours got approved, you know, depended on when the deposition was when the deadlines were and um also a lot of time there was uh you know the time change with japan meant that there were weird hours if i was interpreting for a deposition on that was happening in osaka or whatever um it was <laughs> not not the healthiest physically not the healthiest no. being a lawyer being, being a lawyer is not usually equated with that <laughs> and working working on dd exercises is is the worst of it yeah yeah, yeah. But I, um, because I was a native English speaker. Uh, so again, it was sort of like being in Japanese school, I was the only white girl in the room, you know, in, yeah. the, in the room. And, um, but I discovered very quickly that a big part of my value to them was, you know, the attorney notes, if you have an electronic document review, review you have your panel, your coding panel, where you say, well, this is relevant and, you know, it sort of checks all these boxes that you've been assigned to look for. Um, and, but then there's also an attorney notes section. And I used that section as wisely and as often as I could to just summarize 
the document for the attorneys who were, and that meant that they could very quickly uh, figure out whether they needed what they needed to do next mm. with, with that document, whether it needed to be translated, if it was a really hot doc, they needed it translated in full, mm -hmm. or I would say, well, this section talks about, um, you know, the subsidiary company that did this wrong, and um, but the rest of it is not totally not relevant. It's just a resume from, so, you know. Yeah, for, how valuable, by the way. Thing. Yeah, so yeah. I quickly found that um, that was, of course, that saves them time, meaning it saves the, the client money, which is, you know, name of the game. So I, as soon as, I mean, the thing about temporary doc review is that they were, you know, it's feast or famine. I would have work, work, work for nine months and then the case would settle or it would be over and they would fire all the doc reviews, doc reviewers. And so then I was out of work until I could get on the next, get on the next case. And because I wasn't an, because I'm not an attorney, um, you know, I was sort of in the lower level of of reviewers that would get called because they they prioritize people with law degrees, of course, but mm. because just because the Japanese language skills are so rare, even, you know, among attorneys, they would sort of um, stoop to the, the levels of, uh, you know, the non-attorney plebs and just en enlist our linguist services uh, when they when they could. And when the client would allow, sometimes the clients would say, uh, we only want attorneys. And then, you know, You're game off. over. Yeah. I wasn't eligible for the gig. But, uh, so that ended up being a very lucrative way that I could pay the bills. And it meant that I could start taking some of the music work that was more interesting <clears throat> and more fulfilling to me, you know, instead of every wedding in Central Park in the rain and in the mud, you know, getting lost by the pond and, you know. <laughs> Playing Canon and D again. Yeah, playing Canon and D. So yeah, I eventually I that industry is called e-discovery. Um, the industry that includes Doc Review is part of a giant uh, industry called e-discovery. And eventually, I got hired full time by a company that I was. I did one of these Japanese projects for uh, a, a company in New York. And when that project was over, actually even before it was over, my manager on that project came to me and said, you know, I've, I've seen you bossing everybody around and, you know, I see how you work and I like- Eldest child coming family. out. That's right, yeah. <laughs> know it all, yeah. <laughs> top, top, everybody get to work. Uh, he said, we actually have a, a position, a full-time position uh, open in our company now. And I'd love you to, if I don't know what your life is, what you're what you're doing you know he didn't know anything about my music about my but he said would you be willing to come interview with you know SVP at our company about this full-time position I said sure like I'll have a conversation with anybody let's let's go and uh they that ended up being a really um I ended up taking that position so now I do less of the Japanese work uh, for in e-discovery and more I work in the marketing department actually for this this discovery that just uh, it's really nice to not have to think of music only as my how I'm going to pay my rent hmm. um, do you have time that... do you still have time now to do your music though <laughs> this is my question yeah. it yeah. swings the pendulum swings the other way yes yeah it really does. it's it's a tricky juggling game that's for sure I mean it means that sometimes after concerts at 11 30 at night while some of my friends are out drinking beer and celebrating the success of the concert 
I'm at home, you know, working on Excel spreadsheets and, and writing marketing mm. blogs and articles because I have a deadline. And, uh, you know, it means that sometimes I'm in the lounge at the airport, you know, trying to find a quiet corner so I can be on a team's call with uh, people on, you know, at, at my corp job. Mm. Oh, it's uh, so you're balancing it, but you're doing your A type personality and working way too hard and too many hours, and there's no and so where's the time for the personal life? <laughs> oh, it mm. it doesn't really exist, Kim. I don't. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'm I'm looking for it. I you know a lot of my music colleagues are sort of like my family. Yeah. I feel like that's that provides me with a lot of the uh camaraderie and uh friendships and and uh that I need and that I love but um you know I live in New York City I can walk to Lincoln Center I can walk to the Metropolitan Opera I I try to take advantage of everything that the city has to offer when when I can but yeah Mm -hmm. I certainly spend a lot of time working yeah (laughs) I mean it's yes yes as do I I know and it's kettle calling pot black I do recognize this Uh, but yeah, it's interesting because that, that whole idea of when you're doing something you're passionate about and you love, you find like-minded individuals and you enjoy spending the time with them. And so while there may not be that sort of split between, you know, work and out of work life, actually your in work life is quite fun and you enjoy being around those people. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's important to draw out. We are so quickly coming to close. So I have to ask you the final question, which is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received, read, heard, listened to in a podcast? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Always send thank you notes from, from Bo Rutledge. Bo Rutledge. I know, right? Yes, that was a great one. I love that one. I wish I could, uh, I could steal it, but I'll, I'll just cite it here for, for your listeners. Um, you know, I, my dad always says to me, stay interesting, Mo stay interesting and stay interested in other words equip equip yourself with um experiences and relationships and challenges that that uh make me an interesting person but also stay interested so the interested in people interested in situations and interested in in what is different from my own experience and and i um, I think about that a, a lot um, because I think it's it's very good advice, and I, I try to abide by that as as much as I can. I I listened to an interview recently of Itzhak Perlman, who is one of the, the foremost you know violinists in in the world, and he's like the Michael Jordan of you know violin playing. And he, somebody asked him asked him in a radio interview recently. How do you, you know, you've really done it all, Mr. Perlman. You've, you actually have done everything. How do you, how do you feel? How do you still make it? Um, what's next? Why are you still playing the, I can't remember the exact question, but he was sort of asking what, uh, how he kept it fresh uh, and, or if that was even possible. And um, Itzhak Perlman said, I try to never be bored when I'm playing music. I do whatever I can to not be bored. And I thought that was such, I thought that was such a good um, strategy also, you know, so we know the best, the most about our own 
needs and desires and wants and capabilities. And so with that knowledge, uh, figure out how to still be interesting and make something relevant and, and make it uh, fulfilling uh, to oneself, whether it's art or a job or relationships. And I, it's, uh, I guess those, that, that would be my stay interesting, stay interested. I love that. And, and I think there's, mm -hmm. there's something around that boredom as well. Boredom is completely a state of mind. And, you know, it drives, I, I always tell my, my kids, like, the most boring thing to me is you telling me you're bored, like, go do something, go find, <laughs> go find something to do. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's absolutely, you know, stay interested. And, and there's so much to read and learn. And there's so much to absorb in the world. How, how can you ever be bored? Because there's so yeah. much to do. And it's, yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And I love it as advice. And I mean, throughout this whole conversation, you've really, you've peppered your dad in there. And, you know, and, and seeing his influence on you throughout it is, is amazing. And it's so great to hear that from a successful woman that you mm -hmm. have this male influence in your life that was so positive. And, and I just, I mean, shout out to your dad for, for raising you so well and putting you wow. in positions where you had to go to school, you didn't speak the language and you couldn't even write in the language. I mean, that's the thing you show up in Japan and you can't even read anything like it's there's no there, there's no letters you're just like <laughs> nope no abcs no abcs in japanese so yeah absolutely well maureen this has been an absolute pleasure and just pulled so much from it in terms of um your story and i and i love the fact that you don't have that single mindedness towards a goal that mm. actually you keep your options open i love the idea of getting the antennas out and just yeah, staying interesting and staying interested. I just, yeah, that really resonated with me. So thanks so much for coming on and I wish you all the best. And if you have um, a website or anything that you can get booked on, what what's your website? It's just MaureenMurchie.com. You know, not super fancy, but it's, I love it. My friend Sarah Stone made it for me as a birthday present years ago. She just said, Maureen, this is ridiculous that you still don't have a website, you know, old, old granny without... <laughs> a personal website so now I have one I and I'm very proud of it it has just you know my my bio and a couple of recordings you can listen to my playing violin and viola uh it has some of my upcoming shows listed so yeah incredible thank you well, I'm going to try to steal one of those uh one of those clips and see if I can somehow work it in I do all my own tech from and so I <laughs> and mm -hmm. let me I'm not going to promise anything but if I can get your violin playing somewhere in here I would love to do that Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure, Kimberly. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Maureen. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please join me next week when I speak to Lillian Klein, a screen and stage actress about being a dream catcher. If you're looking for an executive coach or just want to get in touch, please check out my website, kljconsulting.co.uk. Or you can email me on the Undiscovered You podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you're one step closer to discovering the Undiscovered You. Mm -hmm.